Looking Deep is a podcast that seeks to understand varied and unique perspectives about life for our audience and our planet. We operate under the ethos of no judgment, only leaving space for understanding in the hopes that in learning about the lives of others, we uncover a deeper truth for ourselves. Looking Deep is hosted by Kareem Watermore and is followed by an after show featuring Julia Chatwin. Thank you for joining us and let the show begin. I am so excited and so honored to have this conversation today with a person I've known for a very long time, I would say 17 or 18 years, Ms. Erin Green. Ms. Erin Green is an activist, a feminist, one of the smartest people that I know. I met Erin sometime in 2003 when I joined the Rainbow Alliance, and she was one of the pivotal figures of that organization. So today we're going to talk about Erin, her beginnings, her life as an activist, her life as a work as a feminist, and her visions for our country. We live in the Bahamas, and so we will, in the wider context, the Caribbean. And so we will be talking to Erin about her life. So Erin, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, me and the like uh, 100 mosquitoes who are here with me. Oh, no. I'm really happy to be here today. Erin, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself an activist, or how do you identify if you do identify? I don't consider myself an activist mm-hmm. in the sense that I'm not really engaged in a, I don't work with a particular organization, although I do volunteer with the Equality Bahamas, right? But I, am, I don't work formally with an organization. And even, you know, from Rainbow Alliance of Bahamas' time, I identified more as an advocate, right, than an activist. And I think an activist is somebody who is sort of working on the ground in the community with programs, with members of the community. And what I do is slightly different. I'm a public advocate. I engage in public discourse, discourse at national level on issues directly affecting the LGBTI community or indirectly affecting the LGBTI community. Human rights sort of as a whole, although my focus is LGBTI rights as human rights, women's rights as human rights, uh, food security and food sovereignty as human rights, and economic rights as human rights, right? Mm. So I identify as an advocate. And you know, recently, I have been identifying as an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, intersectional human rights advocate. But then I realized that maybe that's not the language that's right. Mm-hmm. Because I, my work is, I guess, not about opposing, fighting, or combating imperialism and capitalism, right? But it's about creating a world beyond those things, right? I, I don't want to oppose them. I don't want to be caught up. I don't want to be a part of that paradigm, right? I don't want to be anti something. I want to go beyond it. I want us to imagine a world and life beyond imperialism and beyond capitalism. And and when I say I want, I think that's what we need, right? Mm -hmm. I think anytime we say anti-imperialist, we're still caught in an imperialist construct, right? Say anti-capitalist, we're still caught in a capitalist construct. The conversation is still defined by imperialism or defined by capitalism, right? And I think it's important 
for us as advocates or revolutionaries to help people to imagine, dream, construct thoughts, plan, navigate beyond those things, you know? Yeah. So I think it was Mother Teresa. She's like, don't invite me to an anti-war rally. Invite me to a peace protest, mm. you know, a peace demonstration, right? Yes. And so I think that's the sentiment. Focus your energy on the thing that you want, not yeah. the thing that you don't want. But I think racism is a good example, right? Yeah. Right? It's a part of it because I think that we absolutely have to deconstruct racism, right? But, but I think racism is a tool of imperialism, right? It's one of the isms that's used to divide us, to keep us focused on the wrong things, right? So the thing that was constructed, right? So race is a construct. It developed, it was created like in the 1600s. And Europeans created it to create a hierarchy of power or privilege for themselves and to place themselves at the top of it. So they created, you know, they defined this term white and they were white and everything that wasn't white was black, right? And was lesser than. So they created this construct. And the construct was to create a hierarchy of power that would privilege themselves. Um, so racist is construct, but it's become a very real thing, right? Like, so now it's 2020 and it's impossible to say, well, race doesn't exist. Let's, I don't see color. That don't make any sense. But as an anti-imperialist advocate, right? As somebody that is focused on deconstructing racism, I think it's important to acknowledge these two things, right? Like, first of all, race is mutable changes and it has changed over geography, culture, and time. And, but ancestry is immutable, right? It is, your DNA is what it is. And we can trace your ancestors back to a certain period in time, that's where they were. And if we go back 100 years, that's where they were. It's immutable. So I think it's more helpful or more useful for us to talk about ancestry versus race. Mm. Because race is this construct that changes and has different meanings for different people at different times and with different cultural locations, right? But more importantly, race is something that those white people created, right? So when we talk about like race and blackness, sometimes I say, well, let them have it. Let them have blackness, right? So like this idea that I want to be anti-racism, right? I think about it from a different perspective. Let's forget race. Let's deconstructed to the point where we could forget about it. But you got to do the deconstructing first, right? But I say, let them have race. Yeah. Let them have blackness if they want it. You could imagine Joe Biden got up on a stage and said, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. Mm-hmm. Right? People were outraged. Like, what? What is this white? Does he not? Did he read the room? Did you read the literature? The notes? Did you get it? No, white man, you can't say that. But then guess what? He's right. He's white. His people, they created blackness. Let them have it. Yeah, yeah. He could tell you that. Yeah. Because he created it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, at the same time, I identify as an Afro-Caribbean woman, right? I identify as black. I do identify as black. But at the same time, I see the whiteness in me, right? Like this thing that is a construct. I understand how close to ontological whiteness, right? Like where I sit in terms of ontological whiteness. I went to QC. Fruit, the plural of fruit is fruit, not fruits, (laughs) right? I wear socks with my sandals. 
I don't say females. I mean, there are all of these things that I know are part of this sort of whiteness, right? This policing. All of these things were part of this process of me becoming white and that I'm working through them in myself, right? I identify as Black. I think it's more important to identify as African. But I would never tell anybody of African descent or somebody who identifies as Black. Well, I would never tell someone who is of African descent that they cannot identify as Black, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a space for people of African descent to determine for themselves. But I think we should get rid of race. And you're saying that because black is a Eurocentric term that was given no, because, to people. Well, because race, is a, because race is a Eurocentric construct mm. whose ultimate goal is to divide. And no matter how much it seems we continue to try and anti it, right? It's like we're only multiplying it. Yeah. That's not doing the trick. But if we see it for what it is, right, and then give it back to them, let them have it. Yeah. And I think in the last maybe four years, you know, we've seen, and I don't know these, and maybe you can talk about this as someone that's been an advocate for many years and and probably someone that's studied movements in the past. But I think in the last four years, there's been a consciousness, an awakening of that, of getting in touch with one's Africanness. Some people of other races have been able to even, you know, look at the way that systemic racism has taken a hold. What Do you think there's been a moment that we're in a moment right now? Or is it just like another crest which is going to follow by another trough? Okay, so I think we are in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens in this moment, though, will determine whether we sort of spiral up, you know, spiral in the evolution. The way that we perceive time is, is skewed by our perception of our reality. But I think that time sort of moves in a loop. And I think that what determines the difference is how we, you know, how we acknowledge ourselves and what the moment is. I think we are in a moment. I think, I don't want to say despite, I want to say because of everything, you know, I just said, the critique of Blackness, that doesn't negate or take, diminish the importance of this, you know, I think the importance of this moment of people sort of galvanizing around this idea that Black lives matter in the world, right? I think this is really important. I think, though, that what has happened is because the movement has been led by the sort of global North American movement, right? It is perceived as a Black, right, versus African lives matter. Um, you know, we talk about it as Black, but what we really mean is African lives matter, right? Yeah. But I think because the moment is sort of like the momentum or the mass is in, in the U.S., right? Or it feels like that because of the way the media works and mainstream media works. You know, we're thinking about Black Lives Matter, but I think this is an important moment. And if in this moment we realize that what we're saying is not that Black Lives Matter, but that African descent lives matter, then as opposed to a, a wave that, you know, falls, sort of crests into a valley, we'll see an, you know, a spiral of movement. Because the truth is we're in the middle of the international decade for people of African descent, right? You know, it's, that's a global movement. And I think that's important. I think that this is happening in that decade, right? 
Like, I think it would have been different if we weren't in that decade. You know, I think the energy would have played out differently. I was just going to say, you know, in the U.S. right now, there's this ADOS movement, Mm -hmm. American descendants of slaves. Mm -hmm. And it's this sort of political movement, right? And it it is made up of and for and by people whose ancestors, they want to say, came straight from Africa to the U.S., right? So if you have an ancestor who is not from the U.S., like from the Caribbean or directly from Africa, then you're not a part of ADOS. This is just for the descendants of slaves in America. Mm. So someone like Umar Johnson is not a part of, or he's been told that he cannot be a part of the movement because he has one ancestor that's from Cuba. And this guy is the most, uh, well, I don't know if prolific is the right word, but he's one of the most popular pan-African advocates and revolutionaries in the U.S. right now. And this movement called ADOS told him he can't be a part of it because one of his ancestors is from Cuba. You know, I've heard of the ADOS movement and what I find difficult is how do you know, you know what I mean? Like, for example, if you are a Bahamian person of African descent, it could be one of various things, you know, you could be from the Caribbean, from another island, you could have been a person that was Spanish, the Bahamas, a person of African descent, or you could have been a slave of the British, or you could have been descended from slaves that were bought from America and after the War of Independence. You know, it's hard to know, I mean, exactly what your ancestry is, and I don't think that the records have been very well um, kept. Right, right. So that's a part of the problem, right? Inherent problem with the movement is that, is that you're displacing a whole bunch of people. Yes. Or your identity is rooted in this idea of displacement, right? Which I think completely distorts the experience, the African experience and the Black experience in the U.S., right? And it cuts off the contributions. It sort of invisibilizes the contributions of Caribbean people and African migrants on African American culture and then the culture of blackness mm-hmm. in the US, right? And so you couldn't have a hip hop without Bahamian influence mm-hmm. in music in the East Coast in the US, right? You wouldn't have a Trino or a Trick Daddy yeah. without Bahamian influence in, and that's a more modern, you know, a more yeah. modern hip hop. There's just so much of the U.S. that wouldn't be, that wouldn't exist, right? Yeah. Without this fusion of Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Latin going further south um, in the region and contemporary African migrant culture, right? It just wouldn't exist. And so anyway, all of that sort of, you know, all of that sort of goes back to why it's important to make a distinction of what Blackness is, right? and then whether we feel we can own it or not, this sort of constant interrogation of what it is. Because what it leads us to ultimately is this idea that beyond blackness, right, is indigenousness, right? And so forget about race. So, you know, I say to people like in conversation about it, I was in this conversation, the woman is saying, well, are you saying that because I'm, you know, I'm saying that I'm a white woman practicing witchcraft, that I'm being racist. And so I said, no, but if you said to me, I'm a woman of European descent, 
right? Who is engaging in or trying to find her way back to indigenous spiritual practices, right? Then I would tell you, I don't have a problem with that. But if you identify as white, then would you identifying as is a part of a system that intentionally rooted out that indigeneity you say that you practice in. So you cannot be, you cannot identify as white. Mm -hmm. You could be of European descent and people could identify you as white all the time, right? And that happens to a lot of people in the Bahamas who are of European descent primarily, right? They don't identify as white. I get some friends from Abaco, they read. They don't identify as white. It just is not the culture of the spaces that they grew up in. And even though that may have been dominant culture of the island that they grew up on, it wasn't the dominant culture of the space they grew up in. They know people identify them as white, but they don't identify as white. You see what I'm saying? Because they don't want to identify or align with that political class, spiritual structure. Hmm. And so if you, right, so we don't be anti-racism, right? Be about a place beyond anti, you know, beyond racism. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, and because beyond racism is descent, right? So then we can all talk about, well, I'm of African descent and I'm of European descent. And this is an indigenous practice for me. So like when we talk about locks, right? And people say, oh, well, should white people wear locks? I can say, no, white people shouldn't wear locks. People of European descent could wear locks. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because whiteness put people in jail for locks. Whiteness killed people for locks. Whiteness is that the last Caribbean country didn't repeal the law that said you could shoot a person with dreadlocks on sight until the 1940s. That's whiteness. But European descent, Scots, you know, the Britons, the Saxons, Indigenous European people, indigenous Asian people, people all over the world, their hair would lock, they would wear locks. That's an indigenous practice. You see what I'm saying? Because when you get to the root of it, whiteness is against indigeneity too. And then when we could get to that place, then we could have conversations. You're not having silly conversations about mixed race marriages and, you know, is this a danger to my culture or to your culture? We get past that foolishness, right? We could talk about we could talk about people of different heritages and ancestries building families together. We could talk about the blendings of indigenous cultures. We could talk about the places where they're the same and where they're different. Right? Mm-hmm. Then we begin to have entirely different conversations. And so like taking us right back to that sort of question of, you know, what do I call myself? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a part of that process of realizing that because i like listen i really like the feeling of saying i'm an anti-capitalist anti-imperialist advocate you know but i think what's more important is to let go of that and to try and imagine a place beyond that Mm. and then how do i bring that into my identity as an advocate right like how do i tell people that that's what i do and then how do i turn that into a legitimate form of advocacy right Maybe I could be an advocate for indigenous rights, in a sense, you know? Yeah. All right, Aaron. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for letting me waste your time, buddy. No, no, thank you. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day, buddy. You too. All right.
Thank you for listening to our podcast, Looking Deep. For more resources, please check out our website for our show notes for this episode. Coming up, our after show Looking Deeper will begin. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Looking Deeper with Kareem Waterbar and Julia Chatwin. Hi, Julia. How's it going? It's going fine. I'm really excited because this is actually our final show for the season. Um, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Went by really so fast. So this should be fun. This is going to be a little bit more intensive, you and me. Yeah. So if anybody has noticed, we did not do an after show for Aaron Green podcast because Aaron had so much to say. and. It was all very, very important, but we yeah. just couldn't tackle it all in one show. So we decided to talk about some of the topics that she talked about, namely capitalism and racism. So let's talk about capitalism. I know, I think Erin okay. did mention she was an anti-capitalist and then talking to you, you had some ideas about how you, what your ideas about capitalism. Can you expand on that? So I'm not anti-capitalist exactly. Like, I mean, I find that there are, you know, of all the economic systems that uh, humans have come up with, capitalism is one that isn't perfect and it does kind of reward assholery, you know what I mean, so to speak. And it, I think in theory, it is a lot worse than something that's more social, like something more like socialism or communism. But I do think that Socialism and communism, in the end, like they might start off working because I think planned economies do have some benefits to them. But I also think they don't always reward risk taking and they don't always reward innovation. But the problem with capitalism is that while it rewards those two things, it completely punishes people if they are unable to produce capital, right? Which is really stupid because people are worthy regardless of how much money they produce or how much money they have, like everybody is worthy and they should be taken care of, right? So I think for me, an ideal system would be a system that is capitalist, but also includes very, very strong social safety nets, like a very strong welfare state that is also capitalist, to me is the best system, kind of like something we see in like Finland, for example, yeah. right? Where like you can start your own company and you can make a profit with your company, but if you don't, you're not going to fall into the pits of poverty because there are systems there, you know, to keep you okay. And like, you know, I think it's okay to make a profit, but I don't think it's okay to make a profit at the expense of people not having a quality of life. I'm not anti-capitalist. I have a bit of a more in-between position. I think I'm closer to you. Unfortunately, I spend most of my life adult life misunderstanding the meaning of capitalism i always confuse capitalism with the free economy you know and i always thought that, that that's what i mean like it was a right to, to have business and to be free of government interference which is capitalism but it's a little bit stronger of a definition than that and yeah. capitalism when i looked it up is an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private for profit than by the state mm-hmm. um right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I am not an anti-capitalist um, just based on the business that I'm in and like what I'm looking to do in the company with our company. 
in particular? I also think some people don't really always understand, like, it's not that they're against capitalism. It's just that when they think of capitalism, they think of these things and they go, I'm against that. And I agree, I am against it too. And I was reading an article on the Harvard Business Review, and it's all about this thing called growthism, right? And it's about how companies, they have to grow every year, every quarter, they have to grow, they have to grow, they have to grow. And it's like, well, that's just an unsustainable model, isn't it? Like you can't have a company grow every single quarter. Like in the beginning of the company existing, yeah, you're probably going to manage it well if you know what you're doing. There's going to be a point where you kind of cap out. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. just no more growth to be had because what are we going to do? Like every other company has to fail so this one can grow because like there's only so much money in the world. Well, you take over <laughs> other companies and yeah. you destroy your competition. That's how you But grow. that's a problem too, yeah. right? That's a monopoly, which is exactly against what capitalism should be because capitalism yeah. should encourage competition. Yeah. And if you just stamp out the competition, well, then that's not really, you know, that's... So- you know, I have friends that are extreme capitalists and I do have friends that are anti-capitalism. One, uh, one of a friend of mine said that, you know, he believes that capitalism is counter-evolutionary because it encourages a dog-eat-dog mentality. And haven't we evolved past that point when we, as human beings, figure out that the only place, the only way we can move forward is if we work together and help each other. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. sort of the evolutionary sort of uh, way to go. But then also, you know, that also feels like one of the tenets of communism which actually has not worked right because we still understanding things about human nature and so i think that the perfect solution is to meet somewhere in the middle like as we were talking about before yeah well i mean i understand you know what i mean because like the thing is like when you think oh my god this isn't working let's do the exact opposite right it's not always it's like putting ice on a burn you might just you might just screw things up further by doing that But, you know, I once heard this, I don't know who said this, but it was both capitalism and communism are a poison, but they neutralize each other. Mm. So if you mix them at the right ratio together, you come up with a system that really does work both for companies and the economy and for people. Because, you know, people need to be taken care of. People need to feel safe. They need to feel, you know, oh, you know, because it's part of like, you have to be rewarded for risk, but you also have to feel like you're safe enough to take that risk. All right. I think it's about time to move on to the next topic that Erin had shared in her interview. And it's the concept of race, which was really, really interesting. And being African and white and indigenous and making those distinctions. What did you think of that? Julia? I thought it was interesting. I think she did an interesting breakdown on the difference between, you know, your origins and your ancestry and the concept of race. Because, you know, it's not like humans were unable to differentiate between, you know, humans of different ancestry before, but race really did become a much more contentious and dangerous thing in the 16th and 17th centuries with the advent of like chattel slavery. And that's where like the concept of whiteness and blackness and, you know, redness and yellowness and, you know, all these colors that uh, were used to divide people came into play so that there could be a structural hierarchy as to who is better and who is worse with obviously at the time white being at the top and up till this day, in a lot of cases, white still being considered at the top. You know, even though there is no difference between people, there's no scientific basis for race, 
but it is used in a social way to keep people divided and keep certain groups down in order to aid in the advancement of another group, namely white people. Yeah, that's what they say in anthropology, that race is not a biological reality, but a social reality, um, which is true. And the classifications of human beings based on race became popularized and established in the 1600s to sort of differentiate why you would, you know, massacre a lot of people or enslave a lot of people. If you, yeah. had, if you made these, these superficial differences between them, you know, we still sort of deal with the after effects of that today. I mean, I wouldn't even say that we're experiencing the after effects. I mean, maybe we are towards the end of that era, I'm hoping. But I think a lot of them aren't even after effects, really. They're just continuous effects, because as much as things might not be codified into law anymore, in fact, the opposite is true in a lot of places where it's legally not allowed, right? It's still something that, you know, it's alive and well. Like, for example, white supremacy, especially, you know, in light of the last four years in the United States and around the world, really, you know, we see that it's still very much alive and well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, we have a friend, well, a Facebook friend and a friend in the industry who says when she talks about white supremacy, she talks about the ideology of white supremacy because white supremacy isn't a real thing. It's a concept. And the thing about concepts is that ideologies is that they can be really deconstructed. She talked about also is she mentioned it, she didn't call it by name, but cultural appropriation. She talked about people using like, you know, white people having dreadlocks and what that means. Mm -hmm. And someone saying that they're a white person that has dreadlocks, as opposed to saying they're a European person wearing dreadlocks. What was your initial reaction when you heard that? Well, I think the way she said it, I do agree with her premise. I think she's, with the new terms that she's using, she's a bit of ahead of the curve. I think a lot of people might misunderstand that. But I understand what she means, because like ultimately, white, it's a description that came from the 1600s, right? It came from this hierarchical structure where white people are on top and they're better and they're smarter and they're more civilized and, you know, they have the right to keep other people down. And really, you know, a better, a more accurate term that we could use would be one based on ancestry, not one based on status, which would be like, you know, I'm a person of European descent or European ancestry, right? Not necessarily a white person because that system doesn't work. So in that context, I agree that, for example, a white person, let's say a white supremacist, is wearing dreadlocks, that they shouldn't be doing that. Appropriating culture. Yeah, appropriating culture, appropriating, you know, uh, cultural aspects. So hair being one of them, clothing being another, music, all these things, right? So I do get what she said specifically because she's very clear about this, right? Like dreadlocks are not something that came solely from people with African ancestry. You know, a lot of different cultures uh, around the world did have hairstyles of that sort, but a lot of those cultures were erased, you know, in the advent of, you know, Rome conquering a bunch of Europe and indigenous cultures being erased and outlawed and taken away from the indigenous peoples of other European countries, you know. Then the ideology of whiteness being one monolith became a thing. Basically, white people tried to erase the culture of people of African ancestry, you know, not allowing them to know 
where they came from, not allowing them to study their own culture or speak their own languages. You know, I think we can talk about this forever. I think in our next season, we're going to do a show, a series specifically talking about race. But, mm -hmm. you know, this is the end. Julia, thank you so much for always showing up and doing Sorry, I didn't mean to take up all the time. Ah, white people did it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. You know, I hope that, you know, we're able to give you a taste, but we're going to talk about this topic even some more. I want to thank you guys for listening in and we hope to be back soon. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye.